Chapter Twenty One of the Sea Wolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter Twenty One. The chagrin Wolf Larsen felt from being ignored by Maud Brewster and me in the conversation at table had to express itself in some fashion, and it felt to Thomas Mugridge to be the victim. He had not mended his ways nor his shirt, though the latter he contended he had changed. The garment itself did not bear out the assertion, nor did the accumulations of grease on stove and pot and pan attest a general cleanliness. "'I've given you warning, Cookie,' Wolf Larsen said, "'and now you've got to take your medicine.' Mugridge's face turned white under its sooty veneer, and when Wolf Larsen called for a rope and a couple of men, the miserable cockney fled wildly out of the galley and dodged and ducked about the deck with a grinning crew in pursuit. Few things could have been more to their liking than to give him a tow over the side, for to the forecastle he had sent messes and concoctions of the vilest order. Conditions favored the undertaking. The ghost was slipping through the water at no more than three miles an hour, and the sea was fairly calm. But Mugridge had little stomach for a dip in it. Possibly he had seen men towed before. Besides, the water was frightfully cold, and his was anything but a rugged constitution. As usual, the watches blow, and the hunters turned out for what promised sport. Mugridge seemed to be in rabid fear of the water, and he exhibited a nimbleness and speed we did not dream he possessed. Cornered in the right angle of the poop and galley, he sprang like a cat to the top of the cabin and ran aft, but his pursuers forestalling him, he doubled back across the cabin, passed over the galley, and gained the deck by means of the steerage scuttle. Straight forward he raced, the bolt-puller Harrison at his heels and gaining on him. But Mugridge, leaping suddenly, caught the jib-boom lift. It happened in an instant. Holding his weight by his arms, and in mid-air doubling his body at the hips, he let fly with both feet. The oncoming Harrison caught the kick squarely in the pit of the stomach, groaned involuntarily, and doubled up and sank backward to the deck. Hand-clapping and roars of laughter from the hunters greeted the exploit, while Mugridge, eluding half of his pursuers at the foremast, ran aft and threw the remainder like a runner on the football field. Straight aft he held to the poop and along the poop to the stern. So great was the speed that as he curved past the corner of the cabin he slipped and fell. Nelson was standing at the wheel, and the cockney's hurtling body struck his legs. Both went down together, but Mugridge alone arose. By some freak of pressures his frail body had snapped the strong man's leg like a pipe-stem. Parsons took the wheel, and the pursuit continued. Round and round the decks they went, Mugridge sick with fear, the sailors hollowing and shouting directions to one another, and the hunters bellowing encouragement and laughter. Mugridge went down on the forehatch under three men, but he emerged from the mass like an eel, bleeding at the mouth, the offending shirt ripped into tatters, and sprang for the main rigging. Up he went, clear up, beyond the ratlines, to the very masthead. Half a dozen sailors swarmed to the cross-trees after him, where they clustered and waited while two of their number, 
Oofty Oofty, and Black, who was Latimer's boat steerer, continued up the thin steel stays, lifting their bodies higher and higher by means of their arms. It was a perilous undertaking, for, at a height of over a hundred feet from the deck, holding on by their hands, they were not in the best of positions to protect themselves from Mugridge's feet, and Mugridge kicked savagely till the Kanaka, holding on with one hand, seized the cockney's foot with the other. Black duplicated the performance a moment later with the other foot. Then the three writhed together in a swaying tangle, struggling, sliding, and falling into the arms of their mates on the cross-trees. The aerial battle was over, and Thomas Mugridge, whining and gibbering, his mouth flecked with bloody foam, was brought down to deck. Wolf Larsen rove a bullion and a piece of rope, and slipped it under his shoulders. Then he was carried aft and flung into the sea. Forty, fifty, sixty feet of line ran out, when Wolf Larsen cried, Belay! Oofty Oofty took a turn on a bed, the rope tautened, and the ghost, lunging onward, jerked the cook to the surface. It was a pitiful spectacle. Though he could not drown, and was nine-lived in addition, he was suffering all the agonies of half-drowning. The ghost was going very slowly, and when her stern lifted on a wave and she slipped forward, she pulled the wretch to the surface and gave him a moment in which to breathe, but between each lift the stern fell, and while the bow lazily climbed the next wave, the line slackened and he sank beneath. I had forgotten the existence of Maud Brewster, and I remembered her with a start as she stepped lightly beside me. It was her first time on deck since she had come aboard. A dead silence greeted her appearance. "'What is the cause of the merriment?' she asked. "'Ask Captain Larson,' I answered composedly and coldly, though inwardly my blood was boiling at the thought that she should be witness to such brutality.' She took my advice, and was turning to put it into execution, when her eyes lighted on Oofty Oofty, immediately before her, his body instinct with alertness and grace as he held the turn of the rope. "'Are you fishing?' she asked him. He made no reply. His eyes fixed intently on the sea astern suddenly flashed. "'Shark ho, sir!' he cried." Heave in, lively, all hands tail on, Wolf Larsen shouted, springing himself to the rope in advance of the quickest. Mugridge had heard the Kanaka's warning cry and was screaming madly. I could see a black fin cutting the water and making for him with greater swiftness than he was being pulled aboard. It was an even toss whether the shark or we would get him, and it was a matter of moments. When Mugridge was directly beneath us, the stern descended the slope of a passing wave, thus giving the advantage to the shark. The fin disappeared. The belly flashed white in swift upward rush. Almost equally swift, but not quite, was Wolf Larsen. He threw his strength into one tremendous jerk. The cockney's body left the water, so did part of the shark's. He drew up his legs, and the man-eater seemed no more than barely to touch one foot, sinking back into the water with a splash. But at the moment of contact, Thomas Mugridge cried out. Then he came in like a fresh-caught fish on a line, clearing the rail generously and striking the deck in a heap on hands and knees and rolling over. 
but a fountain of blood was gushing forth. The right foot was missing, amputated neatly at the ankle. I looked instantly to Maud Brewster. Her face was white, her eyes dilated with horror. She was gazing, not at Thomas Mugridge, but at Wolf Larsen. And he was aware of it, for he said, with one of his short laughs, Man play, Miss Brewster. Somewhat rougher, I warrant, than what you have been used to, but still man play. The shark was not in the reckoning, yet, but at this juncture, Mugridge, who had lifted his head and ascertained the extent of his loss, floundered over on deck and buried his teeth in Wolf Larsen's leg. Wolf Larsen stooped, coolly, to the cockney, and pressed with thumb and finger at the rear of the jaws and below the ears. The jaws opened with reluctance, and Wolf Larsen stepped free. As I was saying, he went on, as though nothing unwanted had happened, the shark was not in the reckoning. It was, <clears throat> shall we say, providence? She gave no sign that she had heard, though the expression of her eyes changed to one of inexpressible loathing as she started to turn away. She no more than started, for she swayed and tottered and reached her hand weakly out to mine. I caught her in time to save her from falling, and helped her to a seat in the cabin. I thought she might faint outright, but she controlled herself. "'Will you get a tourniquet, Mr. Van Wyden?' Wolf Larsen called to me. I hesitated. Her lips moved, and though they formed no words, she commanded me with her eyes, plainly a speech, to go to the help of the unfortunate man. "'Please,' she managed to whisper, and I could but obey." By now I had developed such skill at surgery that Wolf Larsen, with a few words of advice, left me to my task with a couple of sailors for assistance. For his task he elected a vengeance on the shark. A heavy swivel hook, baited with fat salt pork, was dropped overside, and by the time I had compressed the severed veins and arteries, the sailors were singing and heaving in the offending monster. I did not see it myself, but my assistants, first one and then the other, deserted me for a few minutes to run amidships and look at what was going on. The shark, a sixteen-footer, was hoisted up against the main rigging. Its jaws were pried apart to their greatest extension, and a stout stake, sharpened at both ends, was so inserted that when the prize were removed, the spread jaws were fixed upon it. This accomplished, the hook was cut out. The shark dropped back into the sea, helpless, yet with its full strength, doomed to lingering starvation, a living death less meet for it than for the man who devised the punishment. End of chapter 21